So if we look in the Torah, um, if we look um, in Jewish works, we see God is often referred to in human terms, human-like terms. Now, one of the central beliefs in Judaism is that God is an absolute being with no form and no detail whatsoever. This is listed by Maimonides as one of the 13 principles of faith. One of the 13 principles of faith is that God has absolutely no form, no detail, cannot be described in any way, no limitations. God is an absolute being, just is. Now, believing in God's absoluteness, believing that God has no form or detail, is one of the 613 commandments. So there is a commandment. Commandment number one is to believe in God. Commandment number two is this God that we believe in is an absolute being with no limitation whatsoever, no form, no description, no detail. And this is the meaning of the first line of the Shema, which is one of the most important statements in Judaism. It is the, it is the central tenet of Jewish belief. Shema Yisrael, hear or pay attention Israel, Hashem Elokeinu, Hashem is our God. Hashem Echad, Hashem is one. What do we mean, Echad, that He is one? We don't just mean that there is only one God as opposed to two gods or three gods. That's not what we mean. We don't mean there is only one God. But rather, Hashem Echad means that God is singular, is a one. Not that God is number one. Not that there's only one God. Rather, we mean that Hashem is singular. What that means is that He is a singular, absolute being, not made up of any parts, with no limitations, no detail, and no form whatsoever. Now, our class this morning is focused on understand, is not focused, is focused on using human terminology for God, not on trying to understand the Jewish belief in God. But it is important that at least we, and we did do a class previously on the, what we call the Abrahamic principle or Jewish, the Jewish belief in monotheism. But let's just briefly touch on why it is central to Judaism to believe that God is absolute. Jewish belief in God is not just belief in some form of higher power that can control us, can help us, or punish us. As all religions believe in some sort of higher power. So even pagan religions believe in higher powers um, that control them to some extent or have some power over them. In Judaism, we believe in a God who is the origin and source of everything, called in Hebrew, kadmon, or in English, first cause. And to best understand first cause, and I explained this in an earlier class, we did focus to this, on this topic, but I will um, 
just briefly touch on it again. Perhaps we can go back to Abraham. Abraham, our sages say, as a young man, discovered, lived in a pagan land, in the land of um, Babylon. He was living among pagans. Nobody around him was monotheistic. Nobody believed in God or even knew of God. And Abraham discovered God on his own. How did Abraham discover God? Abraham had this big question. Who created us? Where did we come from? How did we get here? Now, this is not only a chronological question, what came before us, it's also a cause question. In other words, what makes us be here? What makes us function the way we do? What makes us act the way we do? And so you could go back and start analyzing. Today we have a whole theory of evolution as to exactly how we got here. What brought us here? We have theories of physics, exactly how we work, and why things work the way they do. But let's say you've broken it down, and you've gone all the way back to the original source that it came from. And then you wonder, well, where did that source come from? Or you go back to the original rules that run our reality, that run our world. Well, who makes those rules? Who enforces those rules? Where do those rules come from? And you go back to the question, to put in, often put in other words, who created God? Where did these things, where did the original thing get created? You could go back to a point. You could go back to a first bang. You could go back to a point. But then what was before that? You could go back to a point in cause. But what causes that? There's a great joke that they tell. I think I've told it in this class before, but always worth repeating, that when they first created, when they first invented the locomotive, there was a town that they spent many years building the tracks to connect this town to the train system, small town far away, and they built a whole station. And then finally, after years of building the tracks and building the station, Finally, the first train comes puffing into town and all the townspeople come to see the train. They're so excited to see the train. And they're looking at it, looking at the engine. They can't find the horses anywhere. What is pulling it? How is it moving? They're all trying to figure it out until the wise man stands up and says, I got it all figured out. And he points to the final car on the train and he says, do you know why that car is moving? The car in front of it is pulling it. They say, yeah, but why is that car in front of it moving? He says, the car in front of it is pulling it. And they go through the whole train. Why is that car moving? The, front, the car in front of it is pulling it. Until they get to the conductor's car, the engine. And they tell him, why is that car moving? He says, I just explained 50 cars to you. Is that not enough? <laughs> so we can keep explaining the cause, but what is the first cause of everything? Where does it all come from? 
The only possible answer to this question is that the first cause always existed. It always was. It was not created. The first cause always existed. The first cause just is. In other words, our existence, the existence in this world, we exist because we happen to be here. We don't have to be here. We just happen to be here. We were placed here by something. Someone else caused us to be here, or something else caused us to be here. We were placed here by something else. We happen to be here. We don't have to be here. The original source of all existence is an absolute being that just is. It has to be there. It always was and it always will be. It's an absolute existence and it is the source and beginning of everything that brings everything else into existence and causes everything else to exist. So this first cause is not created by anything because it always was. This first cause is not, its rules are not made by anything because it just is. It is existence. We see existence as things that happen to be here. But if we could picture something that just is and always was, nothing then ever made it be. It always was. Now, this first cause must be absolute. Why does this first cause have to be absolute? Because if it had any detail or form in it, you would ask, who made that detail? Who made that form? How did it get there? Any detail or form within this, ap- within this first cause would have had to have been created by something. Who made it? So therefore the beginning of everything must be absolute with no detail, no form whatsoever. And this force, this original force, this absolute being that always was and always will be, that is beyond existence as we know it, that happens to be here, This was not placed here by anything. It just is, it always was. By definition, has absolutely no form or detail. It's simply an absolute existence, an infinite existence. No beginning, no end, no description. Nothing can describe it whatsoever. So when we think of God in Judaism, or Hashem Echad, the one God, a singular God, it's not just that we have this one thing out there, as opposed to two things out there, or three things out there. What we are referring to is an absolute being, the absolute beginning and end of all, that there is nothing before and nothing after, that stands beyond time and space, that stands beyond all existence that we know, that has no always was, always will be, just is. And that isness, that beginning of everything, that absolute being is the source of all other existences and everything else that was created by this absolute creator. And therefore, by definition, this creator, this being, cannot be described in any way. 
Any description that you would give would be inaccurate. You cannot describe this being in any way because this being has no form. When we humans try to describe something, when we try to describe something, we describe it based on its limitations. It's this big. It's this color. It is standing right here. We're describing it, but it feels like this. We're describing it based on its limitations. Description, that's what it is, the limitations that a thing has. The infinite being, the absolute being, is something that is beyond detail and beyond any limitations. Defies description. The only way we can accurately describe God is, just is, just is, existence. We cannot describe him in any other way. The best we can do is say what he's not. Not limited, no form, no detail. We can describe what he's not. He's not like any existence that we know of, any existence that we could wrap our minds around. But what he is, we can never grasp. We can never understand. Because we finite creations only understand things that exist within limitation and form. We cannot grasp or understand what absoluteness is, what infinity is, what an absolute being would be. So it is beyond our comprehension or beyond our ability to describe what God is. We can only describe what He is not. And therefore often we refer to Him as Ensof, infinite. The infinite being. Or perhaps a better English word would be the absolute being. Meaning what He's not. He's not finite. He's not limited. He's not describable. No detail. No form. We can describe what there isn't but we really cannot describe, let alone picture or imagine, what God is. I have a couple questions. I don't want to focus on this part of the class, but let's uh, open it to a few questions. Debbie. Very good, very well put. Is that similar to an alternate universe? I would say yes and no. Yes and no. It is, it is not similar to an alternate universe because a universe, by definition, has detail, has description, and is a creation. God is, has no detail, no description, and is not a creation. All universes, including the alternate universes that we spoke about in a previous class, are creations, have detail, have description. But we can begin to understand what it means an existence that is not. When we think of a spiritual reality, an alternate non-physical reality, we think of something that doesn't have the same parameters that we have doesn't have the same detail and form that we have. It still has detail and form. But that ability to think in the abstract, meaning think of things that we cannot picture and accurately describe, right? That's a special human skill that we have. 
to think in the abstract is something that we apply to when we want to think of non-material universes, alternate universes. And it would be that same skill that we would use to think of the ultimate abstract, the ultimate absolute being that has no description whatsoever. So no, alternate universes are not, they're limited and describable, but we require abstract thought to address them or to talk about them, and that would be an example of the ultimate abstract thought that we would need to understand the Creator. Do we meet God? That's a very, we become more aware of God's presence. A creation can never truly be aware of the absolute, but we become more aware of his presence. Yeah, but that's, 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 that's a little already moving off topic. Yes, Tika. We're going to talk about that. Very good question. We can't describe him physically. We could describe his traits. We're going to talk about those traits in a moment. Very good question. Carol? Well, I have a similar question. We talk about God taking us out of Egypt with an outstretched arm. Very good. Very good question. How could God take us out of Egypt with an outstretched arm? How can we use human terminology for God? So that was the question that we opened our class with. And that's our goal, what we're going to try to explain today. But in order to understand the question, we first needed to establish that God is an absolute being. Now that we understand that God is an absolute being, with no form and no detail whatsoever, cannot be described in any way, even with spiritual form and detail like the ultimate universes that Debbie was speaking of, we uh, now, and definitely no human description, how then does the Torah use human terminology to describe God? Repeatedly, the Torah uses human terminology to describe God. The Torah says, speaks of God being in the heavens, God being in a particular place. That's not accurate. God is not in any place. He is beyond space, beyond even spiritual space. We speak of God as having eyes and ears and nose and hands and feet. That's not accurate. An absolute being doesn't have any of those forms, but they are mentioned in the Torah. We also speak of God of doing things that we do. Hearing, seeing, smelling, speaking, going up, going down. Also, that's not accurate. An absolute being doesn't do any of those things. We even speak of God as having feelings. God is happy. God is angry. God is merciful. God is kind. Again, not accurate. Absolute being doesn't, it defies description. You can't describe God as having feelings. We even speak of God being knowing, understanding, discerning, aware. That's not accurate either. Absolute being cannot be knowing, that's a human trait. Cannot be understanding, that's a human trait. Cannot do any of the things that humans do. All of these descriptions are inaccurate. So how does the Torah use all of this terminology? 
All this terminology, God, is beyond detail. How do we use these terminology? So here's our challenge. As humans, we live, and as creations living on this earth, we live within what we could call a human frame of reference. We could only describe things based on our own experience. Now, we were given a very unique gift. Humans have the ability to think in the abstract. The ability to think in the abstract means even things that you cannot directly describe, we can still develop more sophisticated abstract descriptions to allow ourselves to understand it. Whether by, as we mentioned before, using the negative, saying he's infinite, not finite, no form, that gives us some sort of understanding. It's a negative, but it's an understanding. Saying he's absolute, that's an understanding. So we can use human words, negative words to describe God. But we can only use, we can think in abstract. But in order to describe things in the abstract, we need to use human terminology. We cannot describe things in the abstract without using human terminology. We need to create words to describe various things, and we need to use words then from our own experience. In order for us to know what we're referring to, you can't give a lengthy explanation every time you want to refer to one thing. What you have to do is, and every discipline, every subject does this, you create words. And words that mean particular things in that discipline, in that subject. And so the word means, um, in mathematics, you may have different words that have different meanings. A set. What's a set in mathematics? It's a mathematical set. It's not the same like your set of dishes or your set of towels. It's not the same. It's a set, but it's a mathematical set. So we use terminology from day-to-day life that we then use in mathematics to know what we're talking about. So the same is also when we refer to God. We need to use terminology that we relate to in our day-to-day life, words that we have, and use those words to refer to God. So what the Torah has done is, it takes certain words that are in our human frame of reference, that we relate to as people, and use those words referring to God. But they're not meant to be understood at face value. They're meant to be understood within context. Just like if you're studying a subject and you use certain words, a set in mathematics doesn't mean a set of dishes, it means a set. If you have a certain term that you use in a subject, it doesn't mean what you, what maybe people generally use it as in day-to-day life, it means what it means in that particular context. So when we refer to God using human terminology, we don't mean God has eyes. Of course, he has no, he's an absolute being with no form or detail whatsoever. Rather, what we do mean is, not that he has eyes, but we mean that God is seeing us, or aware of what's going on. God is hearing. He doesn't have ears. 
He doesn't even hear. God is aware of what we are saying. Our words that we say. God is aware of it. He acts with strength. He shows his power in this world. That he is in control. As he did by the exodus from Egypt. We say God showed his mighty hand. Of course he didn't show his hand. He showed us that he has the power in this world. We say God speaks. God doesn't speak. Now, firstly, if God, we all speak of the mouth of God, right? When God is communicating with us, we speak of God's mouth. Now, of course, God doesn't speak. Um, but yet we, we speak of his mouth. We speak of um, God, the world being under his feet, and how he is so much greater than us. So all the various human, um, human limbs that we use for God are not meant that God has those limbs. It means the function or purpose of those limbs, what those limbs can do for humans, God is doing the same thing. Now it's not just human limbs that God doesn't have. God doesn't have human actions too. So we say of God's eyes, God sees with his eyes, God hears with his ears. Not only he doesn't have eyes and ears, he doesn't really see or hear either. Seeing is a human act. Hearing with, that you do with eyes. Hearing is a human act that you do with ears. God doesn't see, God is aware of what's going on. God doesn't hear, God is aware of what we are saying. God doesn't smell in this week's portion. It says, Torah reading, it says God smells the sacrifices. God doesn't smell. God is aware of what we are doing. We speak of God talking. God doesn't talk the way we humans talk. Now, if God wanted, he could make sounds. And we believe that there were times where God can generate sound waves if that we can hear if he so chooses. But we don't, we don't believe that's the way God communicates with our prophets or communicated with our people at Mount Sinai either. How then did God communicate with us? So we actually did another class focused on this. We spoke about, we did a whole class on prophecy. So rather, God communicates with us through another sense that we don't, humans don't normally have. We are positively aware of God's communication, not by seeing not by hearing, but by another sense, we know that God is communicating with us. We cannot describe it, because it's a sense that if you're not in a state of prophecy, you don't have. So we never experienced it. We don't know what it's like, but God is communicating to us. We know that this is what he wants of us. What does that sound like? It doesn't sound. What does it feel like? We don't know. We need to use a term, though, to refer to it. So we say we hear God speaking. But it's not really hearing. It's being positively aware through another sense that we don't have of God's communication with us. We even describe God as thinking. God doesn't think. Humans think. In fact, Isaiah puts it, Lo machshvotai machshvoteichem. My thoughts are not your thoughts. I don't think like you do. 
Rather, when God does something in our world, the process that went into that decision by God to do that, we call it thinking, because that's what we do. But God doesn't think. He doesn't have a brain with which to think. We describe God as making things, building things, forming things. God doesn't build the way we do with taking his hands and building things, isn't actively making things. God decides that it should be, exist, and it's there. In Psalms we say, Hu amar vayahi. He said, and it was. He didn't really say. God generated it into being, but not the way we humans would do anything. <coughs> we describe God as going up, coming down. God doesn't go up or come down. But when God is actively involved, or we see God's involvement in our world, such as we did by the Exodus, we see, say, speak of God coming down. When God doesn't appear to be involved in our world, we don't actively see his involvement. We say God has gone up. So again, these are all things that um, God doesn't do things the way humans do it. But when we see communication, when we know that God is aware of what's happening, God is aware of what we're saying, when we know we speak of God speaking, hearing, seeing, when, God, when we see God's involvement, we speak of God going up, coming down. This is all, these are all human actions. We, the result is the same. But the action God doesn't do. We describe it because that is the terminology that we have within our own frame of reference. Yes. He is aware. He doesn't see the way we see, but God is aware of it. That's a very good question. Why do we build a house for God? Why do we need to do anything for him? Right? Well, we do believe he's aware of what we're doing. Why he needs it is a different question. And that's going to be for, a to that's a topic of its own, why God needs us to do anything. I have a question. Yes, Deb. That is an excellent question. Well, how can God, man be made in God's image? In fact, God has no image or form. It says so explicitly in the Torah. How can man be made in God's image if God has no image and form? And um, two very brief, there's many answers to that question. Two very brief answers is either. And the truth is, the Midrash tells us that Moses asked God the question. When God said, was dictating the Torah to him and said, right, man... God made let us make man in our image. Moses says, God, really? You made man in your image? How could that be? You have no image. So either humans were given intelligence and the ability to choose, which is a God-like power, or it is the ability to be aware of God, the ability to be aware of the abstract. Only humans are aware of the abstract. Those are two very short answers. Two very short answers. Well, abstract intelligence, something that no other creation has. Yes, Susan. Okay, this is a, a topic of considerable debate. Who, after 
language that humans would understand, and particularly, who chose to call him he and not she? Excellent question. So all the terminology that we are referring to are used in the Torah itself. The Torah, we believe, was dictated to Moses by God. So God chose him. Um, chose all these words. Now, why is God referred to in male form? As we now know, if God is absolute, an absolute being with no form whatsoever, clearly God is neither male nor female, right? So why then does the Torah generally, not, though not always, refer to God as a he, right? Refer to God. Again, we're using human description for God. Hebrew does not have an it, but why do we not refer to God as a she? So we actually did a class a uh, little while back on is God a he or a she. We did a class on that topic. It's on the podcast. Um, just to briefly respond, um, we believe male and female is found in everything and is part of the building blocks of creation. And it is beyond men and women. Men and women is just one of many, many expressions of male and female within this universe. Um, and in that context, God is masculine. But it's, it's a subject for another time to discuss in greater detail. <laughs> yes, Tika. What about when they say is when we speak of God in feminine form. That's when God takes on feminine yeah, form. Yes. Female aspect. Yes. Yes. But again, God is neither male nor female, right? Because God is absolute beyond anything. the female aspect, what is No, Shekhinah means the presence, the way God is invested in creation. Well, beyond masculine or feminine. Both would be incorrect. It's an absolute being. That's why we have both. Neither. None. 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 So, so not only are human body parts not accurate for an absolute being, for God, and they're just used as human terminology for us to understand. Not only are... Um, not only are human actions not applicable to God, but just used for us to understand. Even when we speak of God's feelings, they're not really applicable to God. Humans get angry. God doesn't get angry. That's a human emotion. God is an absolute being. An absolute being cannot get angry. For that matter, humans can feel love. God cannot feel love. That's a human emotion. The absolute being is beyond love. Or God can be kind. God can be sad. A human, sorry, can be kind or sad or merciful. God has no emotion. Emotion are human feelings. And the absolute being is beyond any detail whatsoever and therefore cannot feel in a particular way. So what do we mean when we speak of God getting angry? What do we mean? Not that God is angry. God is reacting in a way that we would describe as anger. In other words, someone did something wrong and God is punishing them. We would describe that as anger. If a human being did it, we would describe that as anger. It's how we relate to God's reaction to us. But it doesn't mean that God has a feeling of anger, because that would be a human feeling. And God is an absolute being beyond any human feeling. The same would also be love. 
God cannot love. Love is a human emotion. We can love God. But God cannot love. When the Torah says God loves, it refers to God's care for us. And what we care is also a human emotion. They're all human terms. But how God is caring for us and looking after us. And, um, and aware of us. And, uh, and to those actions are described with the human feeling of love. But it doesn't mean that God actually feels love. Neither does God feel kindness. When God gives us, and gives us beyond what we deserve, we call that kindness. But God doesn't have a feeling of kindness. When things... Because His absolute being cannot have feelings. Created us with feelings. Yes, we have feelings. He doesn't, he doesn't have feelings. No, he's absolute. How can an absolute being a feeling? It's a detail, a description. No details or descriptions are accurate for the absolute being. Who gave him, if God would have kindness, who gave him kindness? Kindness is a creation of God, just like everything else. Well, the, that such a vocabulary would have no meaning unless we use human terminology that we can relate to. So we use human terminology, but understand it in context. It doesn't mean that God had a particular feeling. It means God's reacting to us and treating us in a way that we would describe for humans as having that particular feeling. That would be the human perspective. But it's not accurate. Because God created anger. He doesn't get angry. He created anger as a human feeling that we feel. But why would he punish? Because that's the system that he set up. When you do things wrong, you get punished. But we don't know for sure he has no emotions. Well, again, an absolute being cannot have emotion by definition. The Torah came up with it. The Torah uses these descriptions because they're, human, they're in the human experience to allow us to relate to the infinite. The Torah uses those descriptions that then allow us to relate to God and understand he's not getting angry. He's responding to us in a way that we would refer to as anger. Forgive us and the ability to relate to it. To understand aspects of the absolute. To understand the abstract. Very good. To understand, us in the, understand God in the abstract. Now, here's where it gets a little bit deeper. Not only... More abstract. Not only are feelings not accurate for God, but even human description, such as knowledge awareness, understanding, discernment, choice. Those are all within the human experience. Who created the power to know? God. It's a creation. It's a describable thing. If it's a describable thing, a description, it's not found within the absolute. Any describable thing is not within God. God is beyond 
description, beyond knowledge, beyond the ability to understand, beyond the ability to be aware. So how then do we suppose? Yet we use those terms for God. God does know and understand and is aware. So the best that we can understand this is God understands, but not that he understands in a way that humans understand. God is not not understanding. Or maybe it's easier to use it with awareness. God is not unaware. He's not missing the awareness. But he doesn't actually have awareness in the sense that humans have awareness. God is not unaware. In other words, knows everything going on from our perspective, from the way we would describe it in human terminology. But God doesn't actually know the way humans know. The best way we can understand this, and this is an inaccurate description because all human experience cannot be understood by God. But if we want to understand the, at least get an abstract sense of what it means that God is aware. So Maimonides says the closest we humans get to it is with yediat atzmo, or self-awareness. I know that I exist. I am aware of myself. We are all self-conscious, aware of ourselves. Now, did you ever think about it? I am here. Does it ever occur to you? Do you think about it? No. It's a given. How do I know that I'm here? How do I know? I know you're here because I can see you. How do I know that I'm here? I just do. I just do. How do I know I'm here? I just do. I just am. So the awareness that we have of ourselves is not an independent awareness, something that was registered in your mind at a certain point, not something you discovered at a certain point that, hey, I'm here. I really am. I exist. It's not a discovery that you made at one point in your life. It's not something that you saw, you heard, or you learned about. Not something that you need to explain or prove. You just know. I just am. So that self-awareness is not the way God understands, because that's still describable and part of human experience. But it is the most abstract sense of awareness that we humans can have. So if we want to get a sense of God's awareness, God's awareness is not that God knows like we know, not that God understands, that God chooses, but God is not unaware. God is not not understanding. God is not not choosing. So in other words, God has all of these, the, has the results of all of these things within him, just like God has the results of emotion within him and the results, right, is able to respond in particular ways and the results of the human um, body parts within him able to see or be aware of us. God has the results within him 
but not in any describable way, but just as part of the absolute. And this is something that's abstract, hard for us to wrap our minds about around, something that, as Isaiah, Isaiah said, your thoughts are not like my thoughts. You can never know me, God tells Moses. Lo yirani adam vachai, no man can see me and live. No man can be, no human can be aware of the absolute infinite creator. And yet, though we cannot be aware of the creator in any sense, we cannot wrap our minds around the meaning of absolute. Yet, God wanted to communicate with us and wanted to connect with us. One of the central beliefs in Judaism is not only that God is an absolute being that created us, and brought us into being and continues to control us and, cre and create us, but also that God communicates with us and has certain expectations of us and communicated those expectations that he has of us to us. And we therefore can and must build a relationship with him. Now in order for us to build a relationship with him, how do you build a relationship with a zero, with nothing, something that has no we have no ability to describe or understand. Therefore, God communicates with us. And therefore, God used descriptive words within our own frame of reference. Seeing, hearing, speaking, eyes, ears, feeling, thinking, um, knowing, understanding, all human feelings. God used it for himself in his communication with us. Of course, with the understanding that it should be understood within context. God is not material, has no form or shape whatsoever, cannot be described whatsoever. Each of these things are only God's communication with us, the way God relates to us, the way he's acting with us. No description of him himself. Yet that allows us to build a relationship with the Creator. By God using these various forms these various descriptions, even though they're meant to be understood in the abstract, as a way to communicate with us, we can in turn build a relationship with the Creator. And that is the purpose, that is our goal in, the, in Judaism, in the Torah, through His commandments and through being aware of Him, to build that relationship. So we do talk to God, and we do be believe that God hears us. God doesn't hear but just as humans hear, God is aware of what we're saying. God's not aware. But he's not unaware. And he's not missing that awareness. And when we say something, the way we humans would describe it, he knows what we said and cares for what we said and is going to respond to what we said. And so in that way, we believe that we can communicate to God as we would to a human, talk to God, think for God, love God, fear God, communicate with God, relate to God as we would to another creation. We can and should because God wants us to have that relationship with Him. I know this class was a little bit esoteric, but um, hopefully... We were able to follow the gist of it and very powerful and really very fundamental to the beliefs of, basic beliefs of 